Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Revealing the truth behind the games we play. Coming up in this episode... The most important things in science are the question you ask and the hypothesis you generate. You know, the Americans, just they're terrified about dehydration. If you lose 1%, you could die, blah, blah, blah. It seems to me to have abandoned some of the good science. I think the stuff in the margins changes, whether the tail wags the dog or the dog wags the tail. Welcome to our first episode of the Science of Sport with myself, Mike Finch, along with Professor Ross Tucker. And uh, this is an opportunity for us to kind of uh, talk a little bit about why we're doing a podcast, uh, what we're going to be talking about in the next uh, couple of weeks, maybe the next couple of months, maybe the next couple of years, depending on how many people listen to this podcast. But uh, <laughs> Ross, you've recently become a professor. What is the difference? How did you suddenly become a professor from being a doctor for so long? I notice you say that with, an, with a flourish. <laughs> I think you, you like saying it more than I like hearing it. I just have a mister in front of mine, and that's why. Yeah, it's it's a this is an academic title. So when I left the University of Cape Town at the end of 2014, I started working at World Rugby, but I needed an academic affiliation, and so I approached the University of the Free State, where a former colleague of mine was the head of medicine, and I applied for a, a what would the title be like a visiting academic post with them and. They said sure, and also we'll upgrade you to the status of professor. It's a, yeah. it's just an academic title, which means much less to me than it should in academia. It means very little to me, to be honest. Well, it means a lot to the average person because when when you think about professor versus doctor, I mean, obviously doctor is something I'll never have, but a professor feels like you're an expert at something beyond just the normal part of it. I mean, it, 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 that's kind of what it is. And I think that's the reason why we're doing this podcast, because for you, the passion that you have for sports science, and it might not be specific to your professorship, but um, you, you've got a, you had a passion for this sports science space for how long? When did, when did it all start? Uh, when I realized that I was going to be a failed athlete. So <laughs> when I was at school, I obviously, like many kids, wanted to be an international Olympic world champion, pick pick your sport, right? So I tried what all of them. What sport was the one that you wanted to be an Olympic champion? Well, I, I tried them all, right? So I played football, and then I played a bit of cricket. Okay, that wouldn't win me any Olympic medals. Uh, I ran, I cycled, I played field hockey. Yeah. But I was I was okay at all, but good at none. So yeah. um, part of, so what happened was I went to What were to you the, the best at, though? What, what did you send the best chance of being at? Probably hockey. Hockey, field hockey. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Maybe because the pool was smaller and it was. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, clearly wasn't going to be a good runner, even though that was the one I loved and still is. I mean, running's my main passion still. But uh, yeah, and then I, in in support of my Olympic aspirations, I went to the local library and I picked up a book mm. to try and help me understand training and physiology and so on. And that book was Law of Running, which. I grew up in a fairly small town in Funabel Park, which is no one would even know it. Uh, we had one library and one sports book in it, and it was that one. 
Well, just, um, to give edition. our international listeners an sort of an idea of where Funabel Park is, south of Johannesburg. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's a very industrial area, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was you couldn't really run around there very often. Steel factory was yeah. how it started. Eh? So, yeah, it's like the South African equivalent of the small town outside Newcastle yeah. or Detroit or whatever. So anyway, I got Law of Running when I was 13 years old and I read it for the first time. And then it's the only book I read for, well, not the only book. It was Did only you read the whole thing. Yeah, it was only the second edition. <laughs> it wasn't that big doorstop that you'll see in the bookstores. I've actually got one on, on our. You, we won't be able to see this obviously in the podcast, but right next to us on our on our bookshelf here, we have a copy of the Little Running, and I would say it's probably about twenty centimeters in width from the back, uh, with a picture of Alana Mayer on it and uh, Ezekiel Sapeng. Um, so it is a it's a serious body work. Do you know how many pages it is? Well, that one no. I mean, but that that's not the one I read, right? I yeah, read, the one read. I read was like the second edition. That's yeah. four. If I remember correctly, four or five. Yeah. And that's like at least twice the thickness of the one I read. Yeah. But I remember going with my parents to the library on a Saturday morning and then sitting in the car while they went to do the weekly grocery shop reading about muscle and Z lines and myosin and actin and so on. When I was like 13, I was like, this is pretty interesting, you know? Yeah. And as I said, I was doing it because I wanted to learn how to run better so that I could go to the Olympics. Yeah. But um, in the end, it became like the seed that. By the time I got to my last year of school, I was going to study sports science. Mm-hmm. And I was going to do it here in Cape Town because Tim Noakes wrote the book I'd read and he's here. So mm. that was it was ordained <laughs> from the time I was about 12, 13 years old. Now given, I mean, if you just have to Google your name and there's a lot of references to you across many different sports, you know, running and specifically the Castor Semeni issue, anything with it, anything is there's a science or sport involved, uh, you've been quoted at some point. Yeah. Um, do you, you know, Professor Tim Noak was probably one of the most famous sports scientists in the world. He's obviously one of our local South African professors, but he wrote the book of Law of Running. Um, do you see yourself as somebody who's kind of taking up that mantle? He's retired now, he's definitely much out of the limelight, or do you see yourself in a very different light to where he came from? No, I do. I am... Um I studied under him because I wanted to follow his <clears throat> his path. Obviously, he's a medical doctor initially and then did sports science, whereas I was just a scientist, not, a, not that kind of doctor, as I have to tell people occasionally. <laughs> um, so, and, and I remember going to the Sports Science Institute when I did honors here because first you have to do this purgatory of a general BSc, mm-hmm. biochemistry, physiology. But eventually when I made it there, I mean, just the opportunity to interact with him. He supervised my honors research study and subsequently PhD. And I was trying to pick up like his mannerisms when he presented, the way that he developed arguments, the way that he wrote. Like this was the person I was trying to emulate. Mm. And so when the opportunity comes to offer an insight or an opinion in the media, of course I, I want to do that. And that's not – that's because – I think sports science is, is relevant to so many people, even if they don't realize it. Because yeah. if, if, you, if the listeners are like me, I pick up the newspaper and I flip it over and I start from the back, right? Yeah. Okay, so there's some guys that'll go to the business pages. some good news at the back, hopefully. <laughs> Sometimes. Depends who you support. <laughs> uh, some guys will go and watch, read the business pages. Some people will start in the front and read the first three pages. But I do. I, I'm I'm someone who will pick it up and say, "Let me read about what I've just watched." Because on the weekend, I'm watching three or four sports events. Let me go read what happened and see some insight and so on. Sports science is that insight. So I want to be part of the conversation. Not me personally, but I want sports science to be part of the conversation. Because I don't think you can understand it unless you understand a little bit about sports science and the way that you think about it. Yeah. So it was a. It's it's relevant. I mean, do you remember how we met? 
I think we might have been on a, on a dance floor somewhere. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing is exciting. Nothing as exciting as that. We met because you were it editing. It sounds almost romantic, but it wasn't. We met because you were editing Runner's World. Yeah. And Still am editing Runner's World. Yes. Uh, this would have been in like 2003 or four. Yeah. I was a master's student at the time. And I remember reading Runner's World because, uh, sorry, other than Tim Noakes' book, Runner's World was the only source of information I had. So yeah. I, my father ran, I, he subscribed, I used to read the mag every month. Yeah. And I remember in like 2034, I read a piece which had obviously been syndicated from the US about dehydration and it was nonsense. Yeah. You know, the Americans just, they're terrified about dehydration. If yeah. you lose 1%, you could die, blah, blah, yeah. blah. So I read this piece and I shared an office with another guy studying dehydration in a PhD and we spoke about it and I was like, this is nonsense. So I wrote you an email, <laughs> basically to not object, but to say, look, I get that you have to, because it was clearly an American piece. Yeah. I get that you have to do this, but this is actually doing a disservice to your readers. Mm. And, <laughs> and I don't know if I'm still like this, but I might have been a bit cheeky about it. Yeah. But you were gracious enough to say, actually, oh, okay, I'll listen to this. And then you asked me to write a counterpiece. Yeah. And so I did that. And then a few months later, tragically, Lindsay Waite passed away. And she was your regular scientific contributor. That's right. Yeah. And then based yeah. on that conversation, you asked me to take that up. And that's how we started out. Yeah. Anyway, I'm laboring the point. The point was, like, I want to be involved in those kinds of discussions mm. because I think they are useful for people. There's two weeks from today or just under, there's going to be 25,000 people in the streets of Cape Town running 21 or 56 Ks. Every single one of those people is interested mm. in how much they should drink or yeah. eat or sleep. And they're all a scientific study of their own, aren't they, in many ways? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it's just the opportunity to be part of the conversation is mm. too good to pass up. So, so yeah, I absolutely try to emulate Tim. Um, and when the media was asking for an opinion, I was never not going to give it mm. um, because I think it's useful. It's, it's, it's also kind of uh, weirdly... Um, uh, I wouldn't, say, well, I wouldn't say cathartic, but weirdly different in that in lots of occasions when you've actually disagreed with somebody who was your mentor for many years and, and the person that you emulated in, in Tim Noakes, particularly around the banting issue. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's we no longer have a, a relationship because he got really offended at the criticism of his approach to that. And I, that's a big regret. Like, I don't, if I could go back, I would be maybe a little bit softer in the criticisms, but. I also don't understand why he's had to go full Monty into this diet thing. And, and the way that he's done it, is, it seems to me to have abandoned some of the good science. But that's maybe a conversation for another pod. But I mean, let's, let's talk a little bit about science. You mentioned a few moments ago when you read that story back in 2003, 2004, about the story we ran in Runner's World. Um, one of the things that I always find fascinating, and having been an editor of magazines for years, of Runner's World and Bicycling, is that science continually changes. I, me I remember reading something about, and you might be able to confirm this is true, but within a 10 to 15-year 15 cycle, 15 cycle, medical students will probably change 75% of what they know. It's something really crazy figure like that. So sports science, it seems to be like, like a con consistently moving target. You know, we always talk about the banting, the carbohydrates. Tim Noakes, a prime example of that is somebody who started talking about carb loading for many, many years. And then suddenly he was like, no, no, you know, no more carbs, all, all about banting and just eating high fat diets. But that's what I find very interesting about it. It's, it. it's not an absolute of anything because next week or a study or a bit of research will say, well, actually what we always believed potentially isn't the case anymore. And that's really what this podcast is about. What is the latest research on these various hot topics? Yeah, that, and I think what I'm really interested in, and so are you, is applying those concepts to the newsworthy stuff because that's the, 
the stuff people are having conversations about over their their brides or their barbecues and their dinners and so forth, their cocktail evenings. We want to be part of that conversation. Um, as to as to how much changes, I think the stuff in the margins changes. Yeah. Like, the, the fundamental stuff's never going to change. The heart is always going to have four chambers. The liver's always going to do the same thing. Yeah. But the the like really minute detail, the stuff people specialize in, and that's that's constantly in flux. Mm. And you would have seen that even in your editing role. Ten years ago, we had barefoot running as a movement. Yeah, radical. And, and then in the last couple of years, we've now seen shoes that have ultra high cushioning. And so it's like fashion. You know, the stuff that was in in the 70s mm. will make a comeback. And then the stuff that was in in the 2000s will come back after that. So it is a little bit cyclical. Mm. And what does that mean? Well, that's what that I'm saying. Is it is it just a trend or is it research that's kind of dictating those norms? I mean, you, you talk about the barefoot running versus the big soles now. And I remember many years ago, I'm digressing slightly, but talking to a well-known marketing manager of a big shoe manufacturing company here in South Africa, one of the representatives of an international brand. Um, I won't say who it is because it'll get us into trouble, but he was saying, look, to be honest with you, uh, we sell shoes because we have to be able to market them. So by talking about devices that control foot and that sort of thing, you know, yeah. we can't sell a shoe for X amount of, of dollars and rands um, if, if the shoe has has no technology in it but in reality maybe that technology isn't such a good thing but so how much of that research when you look at the move from something like barefoot running to the shoes of this year is about science and how much of it is about marketing well it's it's impossible sometimes to tell yeah. whether the tail wags the dog or the dog wags the tail because there's obviously massive commercial pressures and it's the same thing for diets like in the 60s and 70s, the Atkins high-protein, high-fat, low-carb thing was, was around. Yeah. And then it, then it fades out, <clears throat> and then it comes back. Mm. And it's replaced by high-carb, low-fat, which then fades out and then comes back. So, as I say, there's constantly flux, and it's impossible to know what's driving mm. it. So I, think, I think it's a bit of both. So, in the barefoot running thing, a guy called Dan Lieberman at Harvard did a study, which was probably quite a good study, but which I think even he got a little bit carried away with. But the moment that's published, now you've got a Harvard researcher and it's published in Nature, which is like the the premier, one of the three big scientific journals. Yeah. Half a dozen people are looking at it and saying, there's a gap. Right? So let's make a barefoot shoe. So now you could go into stores and you could buy the shoe that best simulated barefoot running. Yeah. And don't okay. forget the book. <laughs> yeah. Plus there, was, there were a few books. I mean, and there yeah. were a few people who created brands around this i remember meeting at a conference a guy who was styled himself as the barefoot professor yeah an evolutionary biologist guy so it fit it fit well with his image Mm. um but then what happens is people try it they fail a lot of stress fractures one lawsuit later and out of the hundred people who tried it only five succeeded yeah and 95 go back to where they came from so then that little bubble has burst doesn't disappear it just continues as a small niche mm. and the next one comes along. And it feels like that's happening in a lot mm. of spaces. I mean, you work in cycling, bike technology will be the same. Yeah. So everything is just constantly in seasonal flux. I actually got a message this morning from a guy who has developed a midfoot cleat in cycling. Mm-hmm. And he was looking about Lucy, uh, talking about Lucy Charles, who recently won the Ironman here in South Africa, and um, talking about the fact that the cleat is now in the middle of the foot now. To the average cyclist out there, it's one of those things, well, why would you do that? But now it's becoming a trend in, in ultra-distance triathletes that they do that. So as you say, it's a, this constantly moving target and figuring out ways to be better 
as you're saying, are not necessarily a progression. It's more of a parabolic nature of trends and cycles that, versus just a linear approach to always being better. That won't be new, right? That yeah. method cleat would have been tried by someone in the 80s. Yeah. And they would have done experiments at the time to look at the force and the torque perhaps around the ankle and the knee and which muscles you activate. Mm. And the reason it's come back now, I'm guessing here, is because the technology has improved a little bit more and it's allowed them to replicate what was done 30 years ago, but slightly better with better equipment. Mm. And all of a sudden, there's a hint of something different. And now there's an opportunity to, to yeah. drive a commercial thing into it. So, so that's, I think that's how it probably goes a lot of the time is that you, you have evolution of knowledge. And that's, a, that's an important point is because, and this was where, for instance, Tim and I disagreed. And mm. To me, science is not like a wrecking ball that swings Miley Cyrus from one side of the room to the next and destroys everything in its path. That's stupid. Science, for all the talk about how 50% uh, of what we know is wrong, it's actually not. It's, it's probably a really small proportion, but it's the stuff in the margins, right? Yeah. And so people, people must stop looking for revolutions. Science evolves. Mm. So we're, we're permanently like the finches on the Galapagos Islands where... If there's heavy rainfall, their beak changes shape because the berries on the island change. If there's a drought, their beak changes shape in the other direction. They're still finches. They still eat the same kinds of foods. They still have beaks. But from one decade to the next, they're sure. slightly different because the environment is slightly different. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. So that's the, that's the analogy for how I think all these things go. So carb replacement during exercise, use this, not that. Mm. 20 years from now, it'll be used that, not this. Yeah. And that's just because... The context is different. The timing is different. The research might mm. nudge it in slightly different directions. But we're not... Maybe humans are changing as well. Yeah, but in that's going to be super slow. Yeah. So I'm now a... I've realized when it comes to sports science, like I'm a Darwinian thinker, is that the best the, the, the best ideas are the ones that will persist. Yeah. And the ones that come in and out, like barefoot running versus cushions, like fats versus carbs, like... 10,000 hours versus talent. You know, that's another debate that's been had. Um, those, those things, people should ask, why do they change so often? It's mm. because they're not perfect. Mm. So, so, it's, so, it's, so science, in a nutshell, is we always think science is perfect because it's about research, about the results of research and research that's done in the right way. But what you're suggesting is that in, in science is never going to be perfect because things are always changing and new things can be found. Well, why can think new things can be found? Why why is that? Why does that happen? Well, partly because the resolution of the equipment is improving so much. So before we had to rely on two eyes and our experience. Yeah. And then equipment gets better. And now we can actually see inside the body, and then we can see even more detail inside the body, and we can measure what's happening at a molecular level. And so that we build our knowledge from the ground up, and the higher up we go, the more we can see. Mm. So, easy example is in the 1930s, I think it was they managed to extract muscle and then stimulate the muscle outside the body and find that it produces a chemical, which yeah. they then say, oh, well, that chemical must be what's poisoning or causing the muscle to fail. That chemical is later called lactate. Okay, mm. so now you have a model. Lactate during exercise causes fatigue. Yeah, but which, then, which you've essentially disagreed with, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So then yeah. 20, 30, 40 years later, as the equipment and the technology gets a little bit better, knowledge evolves. And scientists figure out that actually lactate is a fuel. Mm. And if you didn't have it, you'd probably fatigue and fail. So yeah. then the whole lactate shuttle model is proposed by a guy called George Brooks. And no, we don't want to get technical about it. Mm. But lactate has gone from being public enemy number one 
to being actually a very important fuel during exercise. And the only thing that drove that is better ability to measure what's happening in the body. So in the next 20 years, the ability to measure what's happening in the brain is probably going to be the, where the big breakthrough comes from. Yeah. The, the second half of the last century, the 50s onwards, was the genetic era. You know, DNA was only identified in the mid-1950s. Mm. Before that, we knew about inheritance of traits and so on, but we didn't know what it looked like and how mm. it worked. Uh, suddenly we did, and now we've sequenced the genome. Yeah. So now we're saying, okay, are there genes that predict who can survive <laughs> or who thrives on one diet compared to the next? Yeah. What type of exercise? And that's probably... And there's a lot of companies making money out of that now, aren't they? Yeah, so that's another example <laughs> yeah. of how knowledge yeah. evolves and yeah. someone's going to jump on that particular thing to, yeah. Yeah. to make a buck. Yeah. So the next century will be brain because now we're able to measure specific function of different areas of the brain. Mm. We know, not precisely, but we know better than ever what those areas of the brain do. So mm. that's going to be the, the... It's like the explorers of the 15th century, whatever it is. Like, this is now the new land. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, we were just talking uh, before we did this podcast. I'm reading this book about the athletic brain, which I've actually bought for you today by Amit Katwala. And uh, he talks a little bit about this brain stimulation and how it can help. So that's a, it's a topic we're going to be definitely discussing in the podcast. If you have to look you know, down the line, six months down the line, what, what, what do you want out of this podcast in terms of getting people to listen to it. I mean, what, what do you think the purpose of this podcast is for you? I would love for people, and this has been like the inspiration for me for, for a decade. I started this website, The Science of Sport. Yeah. I'm flattered we're calling this the website name, by the way. Well, your site is sportscientist.com, huh? Yeah, that's yeah. the URL and the site's yeah. The Science of Sport, which yeah. was taken, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, the, the, po the point behind the website was similar. It was like, you've seen the, you've seen the event, you watched Flanders at the weekend or the World Cross Country Champs, and now you want insight. Mm. So we'll provide that to you. But the overriding thing for me was I want people to have a conversation that involves sports science in a cool way. Mm. So the next time you're at a function, dinner, birthday party, whatever it is, and something happens, you should say, hey, you know what? I heard this really interesting thing on the podcast about that exact thing. Yeah, yeah. And then you go and tell your mate about it. I think that would be... That would be very rewarding is if, if we can insert sports science concepts into the general conversation around sport. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about, what, like, I know you are, you call yourself a frustrated sports scientist <laughs> what, or a closet sports scientist. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's why we've always gone very well and we've had, uh, we did a couple of uh, very, I wouldn't say amateurs podcast, but we did a podcast around the World Athletics Championships, I think what was two years ago. Um, and it was great fun just talking about every day of that world championships and getting your insight into some of the not only the science but also your knowledge around the sport and i think that's one of the things that i've always taken in a, in, in our friendship is that we've we've had been able to discuss things but i come from a very different space to what you do um and one of the things that i've always found in a way in a way frustrating is that i always try to as a journalist and as when you've written for us in runner's world is to give opinion about something mm. and you've always been very loath to give opinion and i think to some extent this podcast for me is about yes we will probably there will probably be some conjecture there will probably be some opinion um there'll probably be a lot of that but one thing i do know is that you're never going to say something that is not going to come from some sort of scientific basis um which i find quite exciting because i've i sit and sometimes in my bathtub at night thinking i've got a theory on this and then you'll shoot it down or you'll sometimes support it but it, it, I, I like the fact that you're always the kind of that's one of the things that you've always been very strong on is that what does the science say about that yes we can draw some conclusions 
conclusions. But at the end of the day, don't just conjecture is not there to because that can be rumor mongering in many ways, isn't it? Around science things. Yeah, and the, the irony is that like from within the scientific community, I get criticised most frequently for being too opinionated. Mm. Do you think you are then? No, I don't think so at all. I think more scientists should have opinions. Even if you don't know everything, you should never hold back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So I think of opinions as a hypothesis. Mm. So... I remember back in, it might have been first year of honors with Tim. He used to do something called Noakes Hour, which was one hour on a Friday morning with the whole group and just share his insights, which I loved. It was the highlight of my studies. Mm. It was either him or an undergraduate lecture where they, they said to us, the most important things in science are the question you ask and the hypothesis you generate. So in other words, you start from saying, what do I need to know? What's the question? And the mm. better the question is, the more clearly defined that question is the more likely you are to be able to answer it and then secondly you have to have a hypothesis in other words think of think of the question as the map and the hypothesis is the destination yeah so okay so we have a hypothesis that's an opinion i think that new zealand will win the rugby world cup this year that's an opinion but it's also a prediction Based I on some sort of science and history obviously yeah so most people aren't basing that on science they're basing that on their their experience of the world over the last four years is New Zealand win most of the matches. So it's not a leap of faith to say, yes. I think. I think Elton Yankee should be the starting Springbok fly half. Someone else says Pollard. That's their, that's their opinion, but it's actually a hypothesis for what they think will give the best result. Now, yeah. that can't only be a bald guess mm. just because the guy, one guy's got nicer hair than the other one. I mean, like, that's not a. <laughs> yeah. You've got to have some basis to. Mm. I guess yeah, when you, I mean, when you're supporting something like a team, there is—I don't know whether the, this is the right word. It's almost a subjective, a subjective um, knowledge that you come with. So, if you're a supporter of the local rugby team here, the Stormers, which is probably not a good situation to be in right now, but <laughs> but if you are a supporter of Springbok Rugby, you're obviously going to see yourself watching all these games and having an opinion as a result of that because you see yourself as an armchair critic and an armchair supporter. Yeah. Um, and there is some there is some basis of fact. I mean, I know a lot of guys who know a lot about rugby, and we're on a group, and everybody will talk about the game this weekend, and everybody will have an opinion. It's not totally rubbish. A lot of it is comes from a good background in rugby knowledge. So there is those armchair people that probably have a lot of value to add to these sort of discussions. Yeah, and you would never you would never want to take the irrationality out of sports. Yeah, it takes because, out the passion of it, doesn't it? Because if you did that, and let's say you were following English football, you'd never watch. 90% of the games because you know which way the result's going when Man City with their 600 million pound turnover whatever it is plays Fulham with their yeah. nothing yeah so if you took if you took all that emotion out of sports it wouldn't be worth watching and it certainly wouldn't be enjoyable mm. so we wouldn't never want to do that and that's that's so second to being told that I'm too opinionated the, the like oh can't you just enjoy it is the other criticism that always gets thrown at you when you analyze something and I don't understand that like 
for me, analysis enhances enjoyment. Yeah. Because now I understand why the thing I've just seen has happened. So whether it's a cycling event, whether we're analyzing running, whether we're looking at the marathon world record, for me, analyzing the splits and seeing that he slowed down, mm. let's say over the last 10 Ks, or, or actually, let's say that he sped up over the last five. Mm. And then you say, actually, the fact that he sped up shows that he's got something in reserve. That yeah. to me is cool insight. It's interesting. Yeah, Some people absolutely. get upset. They say, oh, yeah. why do you have to take the fun out of it? No, that, to me. That is the fun. If, you, if, if that's your <laughs> mindset, then this podcast probably not for you. Yeah. <laughs> but if, you, if you're someone who wants to understand a little bit more insight, then mm. by all means. And mm. we will be opinionated. It's, so that's why it's funny to me that you say, oh, you think I don't give enough opinion. The scientific <laughs> community thinks you give too much. So there's yeah. a tension there, right? Yeah. There's a tension behind between just going cavalier and you know what gets controversial is like X, Y, Z is probably doping. Yeah. Or, or we deal with uh, Oscar Pistorius. Should he be allowed to run on his carbon fiber legs? Now it's a German long jumper. Uh, yeah. There's another, there's an 800 meter double amputee here in South Africa who ran 145 the other day, which oh. is nuts wow. on, on carbon fiber. So that, that debate might come yeah. up again. Because it's emotional as well. It's like Casta Semenya. It's emotional. Casta Semenya. It's never a right Yeah. Because... Yeah. The world wants a commitment one way or the other. Should Casta Semenya be allowed to run mm. as a woman without lowering her testosterone levels? That's the question. Yeah. My opinion, which is a hypothesis, is one thing. Yeah. But in that, that's such a complicated one that it's actually like quite a circumspect hypothesis. Yeah. And then people get frustrated because they want, they want a yes or no. Mm. With Pistorius, it's a much easier one because it mm. was a no. I mean, Casta Semenya, obviously, for us here in South Africa, is something quite close to our heart because it's an emotional one. It's It's got to do with the history of South Africa as a country. There's a lot of factors at play with that. And we're going to be talking about that um, in an upcoming podcast. So we're going to tell you a little bit of a, a little bit of a secret here. We have done some podcasts already before we did this this first one. We've got some exciting stuff coming up. And we're going to, we're going to have some fun out there. We've interviewed some really clever authors around different uh, sports subjects. Um, I know you spend a lot of time traveling. You've been working for the IRB. Um, it does does most of your years is, is spent traveling around the world consulting? And what does your daily life and daily daily year look like? Yeah, just under half I'm away. Um, yeah. So my main my main thing now is rugby. I started in 2015 as the researcher for World Rugby. So they are pretty concerned about injury risk in rugby, yeah, especially concussions, because they've seen what's happened in the NFL and all the lawsuits and the long-term mm. effects and so forth. And rugby, we, they already... Just talk about knew. the NFL thing? Or what, what, is the, what is the story with... The, just explain a bit more about that NFL story. I mean, it is, it, is a, it is a real issue now in rugby because of that. Yeah, one of the best sports books that I've ever read was called League of Denial by... Uh, I've got name easier. Um, Mark Wainaru, Mark Fainaru Wada, I think, and then Mike's going to Google the, the other one. So, <laughs> I want to so sound like an expert by Googling two, it. Yeah, so they were two investigative journalists in the US, and they wrote this book. And if, if anyone wants to read up on it, that's probably the best source. You could also watch the Will Smith movie uh, called Concussion, but then you're seeing Hollywood's interpretation of it, which I would rather you avoided. And read the, <laughs> read the book rather. And there's also a documentary on PBS based on the book. And basically they described the NFL's journey where they started to recognize that the head injuries in the NFL were causing these, were potentially causing these long-term effects. And a number of mm. very famous players committed suicide after developing early onset dementia and Alzheimer's and so forth. And a pathologist by the name of Bennett Amalu 
was the first person to then investigate one of these players' brains under a microscope. And he discovered that they showed signs that eventually became known as CTE. So it's chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So chronic means many exposures. Traumatic is obvious. And encephalopathy is damage and pathology of the brain. And so they... They then, they then basically covered it up in the same way that smoking covered up the risks of cigarettes. Yeah. And eventually were the victims or, or the... Well not, what's, if, if someone brings a lawsuit against you, not the victim of a lawsuit, you're the uh, defendant. Defendant, yes. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, buy a whole bunch of these players and they ended up settling for, I think it's now at about a billion dollars. And NFL actually putting money aside, aren't they, to actually potentially look after these lawsuits? Well, they've had lawsuits, to now. Yeah. They've had to now. Yeah. So le- from a legal perspective, and I'm no, no lawyer, so please hold back on your criticisms, yeah. but a, 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 any organization has three things. It's a duty of care. Sorry, let's go in order. It's a duty to survey. In other words, are you studying the risk? Then it's a duty of candor. Are you communicating that risk? And then a duty of care. When that risk happens, do you care and provide for the people who are affected by it? So that comes from, I think, industrial law. So if you're running a building site where there's asbestos, have you surveyed the risk of asbestos inhalation? Have you communicated that to the employees? And do you then treat them if they develop lung issues? And... The NFL were found to have neglected those three things. And rugby, I think, is trying sincerely with integrity to do that. Mm. And so the duty to survey is, can you measure the risk? That's part of what I do. And then the duty of candor is explaining the risk. That's also part of what I do. And then the care is, are we putting things in place to A, prevent the risk, and B, manage it when it happens? Mm. Mm. So that's, that's most of the work that I do at the moment. So that book, just uh, just have a quick look on Google. Uh, League of Denar by Mark Fanarawada and Steve Fanaru. Yes. Available on Amazon. So if you want to have a look at that book, uh, highly recommended by Ross. Yeah, um, or, or there's a documentary. If you search PBS documentary, League of Denar, it's two okay. hours long. Yeah. They interview some of the players and their families. It's a good it's a good watch. And that's So the fear for rugby is that we're heading into the same yeah. waters. And there will be lawsuits there are some already for acute injuries but mm. yeah so my my job now is managing and trying to figure out how to prevent head injuries especially yeah mm. now we are going to have some fun we're not going to be talking just about um, serious stuff we were talking a little bit uh, before we went onto our podcast about keeping some of the stuff light and uh, we talked about doing potentially a podcast around uh, the kind of music you should listen to when you're training any thoughts on that at the moment it is something we've got planned coming up yeah, I remember seeing, just on the music, I remember seeing a study once. I think I was at a conference. Mm. With a Not guy. at a concert. <laughs> no, 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 it was a conference. And some student was presenting his work on different types of music and performance. And I, I remember that hip-hop and, and rap were the best performing. So they, they basically had guys do five time trials, and they uh-huh. played different music, and then they checked which performance was the best. And the worst, I, rem- I don't remember exactly what the best was, but I remember the worst music to listen to was Celine Dion. <laughs> I don't know how they chose that, but that was the worst. So don't listen to that Titanic. Titanic um, theme song. Yeah. I mean, there is some theory about how, I mean, there are apps available now where you can actually plug in songs depending on if it's 180 beats per minute, which is supposedly yeah. the right cadence you should be running at. So yeah. if you plug that app into your music system, it plays those songs yeah, and at that I, time. And that is an interesting, and I, I, I'm one of those people who loves 
if I'm on a stationary bike or going for a run, I do love listening to music because I do think it genuinely helps, and that's why it's fascinating to explore this. Yeah, same. I, mean, I can't I can't sit on a bike indoors on yeah. a white bike without music. I would go nuts after twenty minutes. Yeah. So yeah, there is that, and the other the other sort of related one I remember from a guy called Christian Cook. Mm. He did a bunch of really interesting stuff, and I. I say this with fine print is that nobody's ever replicated this. So in science, one of the key things is that whatever you do should be replicated or replicatable, if that's even a word, by someone else. And in this case, I don't think anyone's ever found anything to support him. But one of the things he found was which type of movie elevates the testosterone levels the most before competition. Okay. Now, the, the Top Gun. Is, huh? Top Gun. Yeah, like action movies. Action <laughs> movies were the highest, which is obvious, right? And rom-coms and romance movies were the lowest. In fact, action movies were second highest. Porn was the highest, which makes sense. <laughs> that makes as well. a lot of sense. So, so the theory was that if you could elevate the testosterone, because they'd previously shown that if you started with high testosterone... I can see a podcast coming then, around this way. And your performance would be... We could do a whole podcast just on that set of studies that he did. Yeah. Again, with fine print that no one's ever replicated. It, so yeah. I don't know if it's real. And controversial, I suppose. In the last couple of years, by the way, especially the social studies have been really, really rocked by allegations of what's called p-hacking and bad research. And they reckon most studies are not valid. So yeah. there's some studies in sports science that will be in the same category, and these might be some of them. But they, they basically figured that if you wanted to get athletes in the right state of testosterone arousal, they should watch porn or action before they go out there and at all costs avoid romantic comedy. So that's the Celine Dion equivalent of movies. I mean, I think that one of the, the fun things about this is how you apply the stuff to your own set of circumstances. And you and I are keen runners and cyclists and we're probably never going to win any major events, but we're keen at it. Um, one of the things that I we see in runner's world is the amount of interest in weight loss. Um, that's a very controversial subject because of the diets that are available now. Um, just some brief thoughts about this. This is obviously in a podcast where we're going to be doing um, coming up in the next few months. But thoughts around weight loss and training and that sort of thing, it's something that's very prevalent um, at the moment globally. Yeah, like everyone, not everyone, but that's probably the thing. That and aging yeah. are the two topics that no one can avoid. Yeah. It's going to happen. Like everyone gains weight in their lives. Well, not Okay, let me qualify that. Not everyone, but most people do. Most of us do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so so as, a, as a concept, just before I answer the specific question, I, I, I think it's very important that people are able to apply what we talk about Yeah. in, in all those instances. And that's as true for high-performance sports, for a coach who might be listening and trying to solve the problem of how do I beat the All Blacks or how do I improve my cycling from 6 watts to 6.1 watts a kilogram for 40 minutes to win the Tour de France. Yeah. As it is the, the average person who wants to finish oceans in 2 hours 30 minutes or lose weight. And the, 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 way to, the way to use science in that respect is to understand the principles and then be agile enough in your thinking to take those principles to your own context. So with, with weight loss, there are obviously certain principles that are unimpeachably true. Yeah. And there are certain things that no one can deny are causing the problem. So our lifestyles, where before we used to probably walk, we were active for three, four hours a day. Mm. As I say that, my, my digital wristwatch is telling me that it's time to move because it's one of those <laughs> things where if you're inactive for too long, then it warns you, right? Yeah. This thing does that to me five times a day, and yeah. I'm quite active. Yeah. So the average person 
is just nowhere near as active as they mm. were 30, 40 years ago because we have cars and we have convenience. What's interesting, though, just to digress slightly, is that if you're living in Europe, for instance, uh, a friend of mine just recently moved to Germany and is got a lot fitter and, a, and a lost a lot of weight because he literally is walking every yeah, day to yeah. work, whereas opposed to people in South Africa. So the idea of a developing world being no, people that are obese, actually, it's the less developed world that are more reliant on cars and less reliant on walking to work and using trains that yeah, are actually yeah, because, the problem. Because there's an evolution of the urban environment. Yeah. At, one, at some point, and you see this in Europe, if you go to Holland or Germany or France, Sweden, Switzerland, the cycle networks there are yeah. just Yeah, everybody's cycling, yeah. Uh, it, the cost of transport is much, much lower when you're on the bike, obviously. Mm. The workspaces have allowed them to do that because they've got good shower facilities you can change. I, there was a study done on the built environment in South Africa, and ours is dreadful. Yeah. so poor. I mean, you used to cycle, I know, to work in the mornings over yeah. the side of the mountain. Yeah. But if you couldn't, if there was no access away from the main roads, you'd be taking your life in your hands, first of all, because yeah. you're sharing the road with 60,000 cars in, a, in impatient drivers. And once you're on the other side, it's just not a comfortable... So, so plus, the socioeconomic status is a massive predictor of health and obesity. So is, it, is it fair to say, then, that the, the healthier the nation in terms of physical health, the more advanced they are? I mean, is, it, is there a correlation between that um, based on any studies that you've seen? I mean, if you certainly give the examples that you've given now, places like Holland and, and even the UK, even London. My son lives in the London. He mm. basically cycles to work every day, um, which he never did in South Africa. Is, the, is, there, is health a defining factor of the, of, the, of the state of the nation? I'd say it's the other way around, more likely. Although you'd have to, you'd have to define what advanced means. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. like your urban architecture maturity is probably a very good predictor of the health of the population in yeah. a city. And that's, that's true even in, like in a country. So in the United States, Boulder is their, one of their healthiest towns. And that's because, okay, it's attracted healthy people as well, so that <laughs> helps. But it's also set up in such a way that you can ride and so forth around places. Mm. Whereas in, I don't know, sorry if you live there and I'm doing your city a disservice, but in Houston it's not the same. So yeah. the weather, the climate, all sorts of different things. So it's probably quite complicated. Yeah. But the bottom line is that your lifestyle is, is, is a massive, there's so much inertia that your lifestyle creates that, any amount of diet and structured exercise mm. is working pretty hard to overcome that. Yeah. So when we look at people who are struggling for weight loss and they're allocating 45 minutes a day to exercise, that's great, but that's 23 hours and 15 minutes a day that they're actually just completely inactive. Yeah. Where they'd be better off being partially active for four hours a day, walking and so forth. So that's one issue. Yeah. And then the other one is convenience of food. Um, Convenient food is generally less healthy food. I'd say this, <laughs> I've not seen this, but the time it takes to prepare a meal is probably inversely proportional to how healthy it is. Yeah. Sorry, directly proportional. Yeah, so I would agree. The longer it takes to prepare, the healthier the option is. And we live in a time now where time is, time is precious and people yeah. don't have the mindset. So I remember seeing the spike in obesity in the United States coincided with cars and convenience food, fast food in particular. Yeah. And that's not a coincidence. So if you really want to understand how to get on top of the weight loss thing, is just undo the thing that caused it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not rocket yeah. science. Yeah. Then when people start fighting and arguing, it frustrates me because it probably in the end clouds the the truth. Because some people will succeed by cutting out carbs, other people will succeed and have succeeded by cutting out fats. 
But I think what everyone is doing is cutting out energy and junk. Yeah. Um, and then oftentimes that coincides with them turning over a new leaf and doing a bit more exercise. And it's it really is that simple mm. in theory, but I understand it's very difficult in reality. Yeah. Well, we're certainly looking at doing uh, sort of maybe a three or four part uh, podcast on the idea of weight loss. And we're going to bring in a, a personal trainer friend of ours who works with people who are losing weight, people are losing and, and focused on injuries as well. So looking forward to that. Um, just, uh, just a final few questions. What is the one, if you had to give one subject that really fires you up, what is that one thing that, that kind of in the middle of the night you think that really kind of gets me i really love that that topic is there is there one specific thing no that changes that's 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 yeah. in the margins yeah. for me the, the the concept that interests me the most is problem solving with scientific thinking mm. but the problem is going to change all the time so like in the last two weeks it was transgender athletes in sport because there's this big martina navratilova made some comments that men who then reassign to become women and so they're transgender females have advantages in sport yes or no right so that's an example of actually i'm sure we'll have to deal with this at some point yeah uh, it comes up all the time with a castus amania issue even though it's different she's not transgender but they the two get conflated so again you've got a question then you've got to have a hypothesis which is transgender women have an advantage or don't either way that hypothesis is an opinion. Hopefully listeners now understand. And then you've got to start exploring the merits of that opinion. Is there yeah. evidence to support or refute it? So that's what that's what in the last couple of weeks was most interesting. A month before that was, was the Casta Semenya case because yeah. I was in Switzerland testifying as an expert witness. Last year it was doping in sport. You know, doping yeah. in sport has always been... I'm not, I'm not resentful about it. It's, it's cool to be part of the conversation, but... I know whenever there's a doping story, radio stations are going to call <laughs> and they want an opinion. Yeah. And I, it frustrates me because you don't know. Yeah. Unless yeah. the guy gets caught. Yeah. But even, even when the guy gets caught and there's mm. a positive test that you can hold up and say, here is the result from the lab, yeah. even that doesn't mean he's guilty anymore. Yeah. So the, the doping thing has really become, in the last two years especially, progressively more and more frustrating and futile because we're just treading the same ground yeah. all the time. And like I was reading an article last night, Asbel Kiprop, who's the tall, skinny, human stretching rack experiment yes. from Kenya. <laughs> one of the most amazing runners to watch because this guy looks like if a physiologist and an engineer and an architect got together to design a runner, it would look like Kiprop. I thought he was a little bit too skinny to be a... I mean, where does he get his power from? He's a, he's a strange-looking fella. Tendons. We'll, we'll do a pod on that. Yeah, like, yeah. Running's all in the tendons. That's why when you've got big calf muscles like we do, we're, <laughs> we're dead in the water. I remember many years ago, you took a photograph, I think it was with some of the visiting Kenyan athletes, yeah. with their calf muscles uh, against fine, yours. And it really... I mean, your calf muscles probably double less the size of theirs. So it, At least. I yeah. mean, some of, their, some of their, from the knee down, they look like forearms because yeah. there's nothing there except tendons. And that's where it is. It's tendons. And, yeah. you know, tendon derived and the mass mm. obviously is a big difference. So there's a study showing that the circumference of your calf muscle is a predictor of how well you run distance yeah. events in yeah. a negative way. So yeah. smaller calves, better runner. But then if you're a cyclist, you want bigger calves, don't you? No, no not necessarily. You want small, powerful, because again, it's weight, yeah. right? Yeah. And you don't want to carry 65 kilograms when you could have carried 61. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. so <laughs> big, powerfully built cyclists are not climbers. Yes. Obviously. Yeah. Um, so how, where was I going with that? So Kiprop gets done for doping mm. uh, 
November 2017, I think it was. It was announced a year, just over a year ago. His, his trial is now coming up. And he's just thrown every single allegation of, of uh, mismanagement at the authorities. They mm. mishandled the sample. They took money in order to show that he was positive and so forth. So that's going to be a court case again where there's so much fog and murkiness and muddy waters yeah. that it's actually impossible to know what you're watching anymore. So mm. I, I don't like talking about the doping thing anymore because for mm. me, it, clearly doping is a far bigger problem than the testing shows. Yeah. But you can't trust the test and you can't trust the test to be... So, sorry, when the test is positive, you can't trust it. Look at Froome. Yeah. When the test is negative, you can't trust it. Look at most athletes. Mm. So in the end, you're kind of in a... yeah. You're just in a holding pattern all the time. I you and I've often, you and I have often talked about why we watch sport and why we love sport. And um, I've always had this kind of not necessarily the ostrich in the sand uh, kind of mentality, but I can't watch an event like the Tour de France or the uh, or the cycling classics believing everybody's doping because it will take away from the enjoyment of sport. And that applies to pretty much every sport that I watch. Um, and it's, I think it's it's very difficult not to be cynical. Um, but I think that we've always decided, and I think this podcast will reflect that, is that we are still fans of sport. We, we love sport, and, and we and we certainly out there to promote sports and the achievements of the sportsmen that we, we're going to be talking about. But, yeah. you know, to sit and talk about that everybody's doping, or this is wrong, but we're definitely not going to be doing that um, because essentially we are sports fans ourselves. Yeah, we could do this podcast in two minutes yeah. and have just one episode every week. Yeah, Nothing you see is trustworthy. Everyone is doping. Thanks for joining <laughs> us. The end. Yeah. And then you just, as I say, you put people in this permanent holding pattern mm. where you're just circling the same territory all the time. It's just soul-destroying. I, re- I really, it, it, it gets to me yeah. at the moment. I, it, the whole field needs an advance of some sort. It needs someone to come along and actually make a step forward, you know, to the point that we can actually start trusting things again. Because at the moment, you know, yeah. nothing means anything. Positive means yeah. little, negative means basically nothing. So we all just sit. But the reality of that is that you, uh, the chances of that actually happening are slim. So you you either got to decide to be have a cynical approach to these things, or just accept that there's always going to be cheaters. Yeah. There's always going to be people that are going to be doing things that are wrong, and you just have to accept that if they get caught, great. If they don't, you know, enjoy the sport for what it is. I mean, there's nothing better than you know somebody controversial like Alberto Contador. People have forgotten that he was caught a few years ago, and he was a and he's a hero and. and Personally, for me, I love watching him ride a bike. Same thing with Lance Armstrong to some extent. I yeah. still, I, I met and I rode with him a couple of times, um, and he, he's an interesting character because he's he's basically the representation of everything that was wrong with the sport in the '90s and early 2000s. But the the the, the well, that's not the cynics, but his supporters will say he was just the symptomatic of a system that was broken. Yeah, yeah exactly. He was the symptom, not the cause. Yeah, yeah And so many people treated him like the cause, which yeah. is exactly the same as they're doing with Russia now. Yeah. So when, when the Russian system was exposed by the movie, well, not by the movie Icarus, as told in the movie yeah. Icarus, people were like, oh, look at the Russians. That's the problem. Catch the Russians, problem solved. No way. Yeah. I mean, if Russia's doing it, then countries with more sophistication are doing it more intelligently and probably doing it without being caught. Because that mm. was such an, a, crude, a crude and rudimentary system. It's a yeah. miracle it took as long as it did to be yeah. exposed. 
I tell so, you what, if you if yeah. you if you the next thing you do if you haven't watched Icarus, uh, it is really one of the best movies I've seen. And thanks, I think it won the Oscar for best documentary last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, what I loved about that story is that the premise of the story changed as the as the story went on. You got a bit lucky with the way things happened, but it was it's so dramatic, it's so disturbing that it is. If you're interested, and I kind of think when I look at that movie, I kind of think that's kind of our role here as the podcast that something is as sort of very niche in terms of a cyclist who wants to become a better cyclist goes on a deliberate doping program to see if he gets better and then how it turns and skews off into a complete different tangent it's kind of how sport how the learnings of sport kind of affect all of our lives because it's something that you think is mm-hmm. you know the, this is the way things are going to go suddenly they don't at all and it, I mean I get goosebumps look, thinking about that movie because it really makes you th- sort of sit up and think hang on that's, it's amazing how dramatic some, some things can end up being yeah maybe this podcast is going to win us a- and ask it 10 years from now. The, the, on Icarus, I, the two things I remember are hurling the wall and coffee granules. Tell me the story on that. So, I don't so remember that. For the Sochi Winter Olympics in 2014, the anti-doping sophistication was supposedly higher than it had ever been. Yeah. It was the the most advanced anti-doping procedure in the history of sport. And WADA at the time and the IOC at the time were patting themselves on the back for it. And then what subsequently was revealed is that the Russians managed to beat the most sophisticated testing in the world by putting a hole in the wall in the lab so that they could could pass the dirty (laughs) urine, which was obviously going to test positive for some drug, EPO, testosterone, whatever, through the hole in the wall, a guy would hop on a little scooter, drive it across the city, they opened the supposedly unbreakable seal, and they just swapped the urine out clean for dirty, Mm. and then they resealed the bottle. But before they did that, they, they had to match the color. So they put Nescafe coffee granules in the urine <laughs> so that it looked the same as it was supposed to. And yeah. then they sent it back, back through the hole in the wall. Now, that, that, that to me was striking because you could put $10 billion into making doping control and testing that is so sensitive that it could catch a single drop of testosterone in the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. But you could bypass it all with a hole in the wall <laughs> and some coffee granules. Now, when that's the case, then it makes you quite despondent because... Mm. The sophistication of anti-doping doesn't even need to be very high. To, mm. Sorry, the sophistication in doping doesn't need to be all that high to beat sophistication in anti-doping. Yeah. It just needs creative corruption. That's yeah. all it is. Guys and motorbikes. And so then, <laughs> then what listeners have to ask is, is there creative corruption all around the world? Of course. Yeah. Like That's why some people are the haves and others are the have-nots a lot of the time. Yeah. And so that same mindset and the same ability brought to sport is going to taint... Yeah a lot more than you can see. Yeah. So that's where it gets frustrating. But as you say, I think this is a, this is maybe a podcast episode, talk generally about yeah. doping and we'll have a go at WADA and we'll have a go at UCI and IAAF and so on. Yeah. And we do that because we are interested in the sport. If we yeah. didn't care, we wouldn't comment. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we do it because we care and we're passionate. And then we do that once and then from then on we, we don't revisit it every single time. When we're talking about the London Marathon, yeah. We don't have to constantly say they yeah. could be doping because it's a given. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Just a, on a more positive uh, train of thought yet, tell us about your, your greatest sporting experiences that you've you've had. What what's the sort of stands out as great sporting moments in your career as a sports lover? Mm. Uh, that I've seen as an outsider or been involved? Well, yeah, in? I've seen or involved with them. I mean, what, kind of, what sort of experiences have, you, have, you, have inspired you? The, the, the biggest learning as a sports scientist that I ever had with with two things. Number one is, as I mentioned, I came down to Cape Town to do my, well, 
I knew I was going to do a PhD under Tim Noakes. Yeah. And Tim Noakes studied two things. One was hydration and the other one was the central governor model, you know, fatigue and how the brain. And that's the way I went. So I chose option B and I did my PhD on fatigue and pacing. And I remember I was very good friends in Funnelbell Park. We had steel factories, one library and one very good athletics coach. And there was a guy by the name of Ian Harris and he oh, coached yeah. Mbulaini Malodzi, the late Malodzi, who won silver in 2004 and worlds in 2009 i think it was in berlin yeah. 800 meter runner yeah and i was i was the man i was here i go with my fancy phd and all this new knowledge and i remember going home one year to visit family and i sat down with him and i explained my phd and he looked at me and he said but we've known that since the 70s this is in aries yeah yeah, uh. yeah. so i explained to him how pacing works how the brain takes all these signals and so forth <laughs> And he said, here's a book. And it was a book that was published by a Hungarian physiologist, sports scientist in like 1970-something. And sure enough, a lot of the concepts that I thought were unique in the PhD were, were there. Yeah. And that was, that was a dose of humility, yeah. which was very important. Because I think many of my colleagues have never had that, uh, that privilege of yeah. being exposed as... as uh, <laughs> Yeah. It's just painting over So you the wall. see it as a highlight of, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. of, that, of that moment. The opportunity to, to yeah. be involved with Ian and go and watch Malawzi training and so on yeah. was a highlight. But the thing, that I, the thing that I remember the most from that was the, the kick up the bum of like, <laughs> actually, here I was all proud of my novel contribution yeah. to knowledge. And actually, I was just recycling something that was 40 years old. Yeah. Um, yeah. And great, the other great, one. Great to, okay, the other one. The other, other similar one is in 2008, I joined the South African Sevens team as a high performance scientist. Coach was a guy called Paul True, who's certainly one of the best sports scientists I've met, even though he's not a sports even scientist. Even though he's not a sports scientist. And we'll cover yeah. what that means in a moment because you'll like this because you can be a sports scientist too. <laughs> Without any training, you'll be better than most sports scientists. <laughs> um, and I then started traveling with that sevens team and we won the World Series in 8-9. So that was probably one of my highlight achievements was being part of that. I take no credit for it. That was all Paul and his coaching staff, his S&C guy, Alan Temple-Jones, um, his physio, his manager and so on. They did all that. I was just lucky enough to be on the bus. Um, but a similar experience there was I remember because in sevens, there's 16 teams playing at the same time. Most stadiums or facilities have four change rooms. So you share four to a change room. Yeah. And you're all in the same hotel. So you see team meetings. You see what they do. And I promise you, 16 teams do the same thing. Yeah. To the point that getting off the bus or sitting in a change room, they listened to the same songs we did <laughs> before they ran on the field. They were copying the box. Like, well, I don't know if they were copying us or yeah. everyone just figures out what works. Yeah. But they all listened to the same stuff. I remember Kanye West playing in the U.S. change room, the Fiji changing room, the Argentina changing room, and ours <laughs> if, as, as the last song. But because no Celine Dion, obviously. No, Celine didn't make the cut. <laughs> Maybe some teams, no. Uh, and it, it, that was unbelievable to me that because I went in there thinking I'm, I'm going to come in here with innovative ideas yeah. and I'm going to change things up. And everyone had already figured out how to do this stuff. Sure. And that was yeah. really interesting. So, and, and, and so... The reason I'm saying that is because a lot of my opinion now on when I read stuff, like you mentioned this brain book, which I'm interested to read, but especially when I read the media, I pick up the Times in, in London and I read David Walsh telling me about Sky's innovative nutrition. No, no. Because there's so many good people involved in this space and it's so competitive that good people figure out what works quickly. Yeah. You can't keep secrets. Everyone uses the same words. They use the same play calls. They use the same songs. They eat the same things. It's, it's unbelievable how tight it is at the top level. And that's just sevens, right? 
which until the last four or five years was not the most sophisticated world yeah. of sports. Yeah. When you go to the professional cycling ranks and so forth, there's no secrets there. Like, there's no there's no magical revolutionary breakthrough that one team's waiting to get compared to another. So that's really important, yeah. I think, is that science, the, the media overplays the contribution of science. And in reality, the inertia around high performance is so large that sports science doesn't nudge that needle, needle as much as people think. If you don't do it, you, you lose out. But, but it's like vitamins. The more, a lot of it's just wasted. But the interesting thing is that one of the uh, talks that I've seen you deliver a couple of times is the differences between the first, second, and third on the podium versus fourth. And what is it, 0.2%? I yeah, think yeah, you, you yeah, talk specifically 5, about yeah. this 0.5%. Mm. Now, that is, if anything's a marginal gain, that is is it. The difference between a podium and a fourth yeah. place. Yeah. In other words, the difference between fame and complete yeah. anonymity is is you know, 0.5%. Right. So doesn't that kind of fly in the face of what you're saying, that those marginal gains are important, that those little extras, and you think about Formula One racing cars, the difference is that they, that's like hundredths of a second between first on the grid and fifth on the grid, and that's yeah. the difference between winning and losing. Yeah, Formula One is a little bit trickier because it's so expensive Yeah, that, that there are literally teams that are doing twice as much as other teams can afford to do. But the gaps are still incredibly marginal. Yeah, but but it's, yeah. but it goes to show you how marginal those extra contributions are when a team, and it's the same in football. Like a team with a budget of the eleven run-on players cost three hundred and fifty million pounds will be roughly equally matched to a team that was built for a hundred million. Yeah. Pounds. What I've what I've come to realize is that the those tiny margins, because you're right, that that's an people love that talk because it does show you those tiny margins are the result of the big foundational things, not the marginal things, Okay, in yeah. my opinion. So, the you know, why is it that when I was with the Sevens, everyone's doing the same thing, but we would beat Portugal and Spain and Italy or, or Japan by an average of 25 points? That's because we have, the, we have the benefit of culture, years of training, a foundational base in Stellenbosch. We see our players for 30 hours a week. They see theirs, theirs for six hours a week. That's the difference. The marginal stuff like who drinks which energy drink, that's not making that tiny difference. In my opinion, it's the, it's the big stuff. So when we, <laughs> you know, we spoke to the New Zealand, um, the, the author who'd gone, Peter, uh, was it Peter Bills? Yeah, Peter Bills, yeah. Uh, about his book on New Zealand rugby. The, the fundamental thing driving New Zealand rugby is the culture, which has taken them 50 years and six, more, yeah. 80 years and seven generations to build up. Yeah. And everything else that you throw around the margins is not going to overcome that difference. So I, I still believe the margins are extremely small, but if you're looking to overcome them, then you've got to fix the foundational bits, not the, it's like you yeah. know, paint the house before you build the house. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in other words, the sky cycling team theory of marginal gains, again, that's something for a future podcast, but there, there is a suggestion that maybe that those marginal gains are controversial. In, yeah, I, in what I, they, find, I find that argument extremely disrespectful to other teams because yeah. what they're doing is not even advanced. Yeah. Like it's like you, pineapple juice and optimizing sleep quality. Like, come on. You're telling me that none of the other <laughs> sports scientists who've spent 30 years in teams and who are now working with the same riders and they've never thought to borrow it, they all do it. So yeah. it's not a gain if everyone's doing it, right? So there might True. be other things that Sky are doing that no other team is matching for budget reasons, because they've got subtly different approaches and so on. But that, to me, doesn't account for dominance, you know, in the same way that uh, dominant legacy sports teams yeah. owe their success to 
the, the sort of frilly stuff on the on the outsides. It's fundamental core stuff. It's the quality of your people. Yeah. So buying the best talent is never going to be that. That's an insurmountable advantage. Yeah. You see that in in the NBA, like the Golden State Warriors bought they had Curry, they bought Kevin Durant, they had Draymond Green. Like they're not losing. Yeah. With the same thing when. Yeah, you, you just, the Yankees just buy the best baseballers. You're winning them. It doesn't matter what anyone else does to overcome that. You're winning. Yeah. Mm. Well, there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of podcasts that we've been uh, thinking about and uh, starting to plan for the next uh, few months. There's some very newsy type podcasts, which we're going to be um, starting with the next couple of weeks. Uh, we'll be giving you more detail on that. Look out at sportscientist.com, which is uh, Ross's website. Also look for Science or Sport. It'll take you to the Sports Scientist site. And follow Ross on, on Twitter. Just give us your Twitter handle quickly. Is it Ross? Is it Ross underscore Tucker? I can't remember. No, it's... I think it's science of sport, but I have to check because we'll I check. don't even know. It's like when people ask you for your phone number. <laughs> and you never I know. should actually know what it is. At science of sport. At science of sport. There we go. So follow Ross on science of sport. He's got a lot of followers. He's very active on Twitter. And if anything controversial happens, I promise you the first place you're going to see the controversy will be on uh, Ross's uh, Twitter feed. So have a look at that. Uh, we'll be keeping up to date with anything happening in the world of sport. Please feel free to send us uh, comments on Ross's uh, Twitter feed and let us know what you think about our podcast when you see them. And, uh, any other ideas you might have you want us to talk about we're going to hopefully do some live streaming of some of the podcasts as well which will allow some of our listeners to actually ask questions while we're doing the podcast but uh, Ross it's going to be a great uh, next few months and we're looking forward to uh, spending some time together and drinking a lot of coffee and talking about some pretty cool subjects yeah same I'm really looking forward to it be good chat soon Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.